soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm. Now, you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. Welcome to Thunder and Lightning, Operation Desert Storm. My name is Jason Dias, and welcome to Episode 5, The Vietnam Effect, Part 1. Wow, we didn't have Spotify or iTunes in 1990, but there was some great music on the radio back in the fall of 1990. That song among them, Sinead O'Connor, with her first big hit, and probably last big hit, Nothing Compares to You. But of course, she went on Saturday Night Live in 1992 and in front of a national television audience, ripped up a picture of Pope John Paul II, maybe the most popular pope ever. And her career folded faster than the Iraqi Republican Guard. But I want to thank everybody. Last week's episode with Dr. Aslan Kali, the most listened to episode yet on Thunder and Lightning. And this week we are talking about, we're back on campus now, 30 years later, San Antonio College, the fall of 1990. And folks, by the, towards the end of September, the anti-war movement is really amping up. And there's a reason for that, and, and, a, and a very honest reason for it, and that's what we're going to talk about today. And the answer to the reason for that is the Vietnam effect. It's easy to go back in history and talk about things that happened. You can go Google a video in 1992 of Sinead O'Connor ripping up the picture of the Pope on Saturday Night Live. You can go back to 1990 and see highlights from whoever was in the NBA Finals or in the World Series or in the Super Bowl. It's easy to go back and see and read and understand events. It's very hard to go back and understand the mood M-O-O-D of the nation 30 years ago. Uh, like I said, I'm doing all of this from memory. And I, I can't tell you, I remember exactly what it was like for everybody. But like I said in episode one, the prevailing mood in the country that was crafted by the mainstream media, ABC, CBS, NBC, PBS, newspapers, and radio, was very one-sided. And that view was that the United States was about to get crushed in a war with the Iraqis. And in every news story and in every roundtable, there was this common refrain, it's going to be another Vietnam. And people that felt that way actually had a pretty good reason for, for thinking that. It's hard to remember circa 2020, 30 years later, but the out, well, 29 years later, but the outcome of the 1991 Persian Gulf War surprised everybody except me and the guys that pulled the triggers in the army. And maybe, maybe even some of those people. I was not surprised. Remember, that whole situation with Dr. Kali started with me being the only person I knew standing up and saying, everybody on television is wrong. Everybody with the perfect hair is wrong. Everybody writing in the newspaper is wrong. This thing is going to be over before lunch. However, not everybody had the same perspective that I did. Not everybody was already a veteran of the military that had been completely reimagined starting in 1980 and maybe even as late as 1979. 
Even people in the Pentagon didn't think it was going to be as one-sided as it was. Before the Gulf War, Iraqis' armed forces were seen as this amazingly formidable adversary. They were toughened by years of war against Iran. They never impressed me either, by the way, and supplied with the absolute best equipment. This is true that the oil riches that Saddam Hussein had could buy. Iraq had 900,000 soldiers. I think in the first episode it had 400,000. It actually had 900,000 soldiers. They were the fourth largest army in the world. But it wasn't just that. The Iraqis had Russian-built and French-built modern fighter planes, ballistic and cruise missiles, chemical weapons all over the place. The only fear that people really had about that conflict, even people like me did not want to fight in what was called a chemical environment. And oh, by the way, they had an elaborate air defense system that when the war started would make the city of Baghdad, the capital of Iraq, the most heavily defended city maybe ever in the history of modern war when there were airplanes in war. Every newspaper, every column, every letter to the editor, every discussion panel on CNN was talking about how the Iraqis simply could not be beaten by the same army that in the minds of many people had stumbled and bumbled out of Vietnam. Now, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, I grew up almost on a midpoint between Joint Base Fort Sam Houston, United States Army, and Joint Base Randolph Air Force Base, the United States Air Force. That's where I grew up. That's where my childhood, and that's where I graduated from high school. That's where I went to church. I would say, without exaggeration, 80% of my neighbors were in the military, worked for the military, or had served in the military. With that metric, it probably goes up to 90%. Everyone's grandparent was a World War II veteran, and everyone's dad was a Vietnam veteran. The enduring nature, the enduring thought of Vietnam was it was a war we had lost. Now, the American military never lost a major military engagement during the Vietnam War, but we didn't have a ticker tape parade like we did at the end of World War II to say, hey, we won the war. And then we thought about it. It's like, well, what about that show MASH, the Korean War? We hadn't really won that one either. And the military that emerged after Vietnam, I would say from 1975 to 1980, the military, especially in the Army and Marine Corps, in the enlisted ranks, was the low point of the, in the history of the American military. The military was underfunded. The enlisted recruits were almost entirely people who were high school dropouts. It was not a caricature to say you can join the Army or the Marine Corps or go to jail. Drug use was rampant. Morale was terribly low. Nobody certainly was thinking about getting into another war anytime soon after Vietnam. And of course, the reason for that was the American people simply wouldn't have it. As I explained last week, Saddam Hussein didn't have to go to Congress to, to go to war. He just did it. He, people did what he said. He was a, a dictator. In America, there is a political dynamic to all wars. And in Vietnam, the people that I met 
as a teenager and in elementary school because I was always a war junkie. I was always fascinated by World War II and, and the Vietnam War. I read all the books I could on those things. would talk about the political dynamic, especially in Vietnam, and the military uniform guys that I met had kind of a funny saying about their time in Vietnam. They would say, well, we were winning when I was there. That was also a popular sentiment amongst the military. But when perception is reality in a free republic, it was, it's very hard to say that the United States had done anything but lose the Vietnam War or failed to achieve victory. The two things means almost exactly the same. And so that Vietnam effect is still lingering. If you can imagine a, a reverberation, a cymbal crash in 1975, that reverberation is still continuing even you know, 15 years later in 1990. As I said in episode one, nobody walked up to you even in the mid-80s and said, oh, thank you for your service. There's no salute to veterans at the ball game. The military is seen in 1990. It's gotten better. The equipment has gotten better. The GI Bill is there. The pay is marginally improved, but it is primarily seen as sort of a Cold War nuisance for the Defense Department because nobody exactly knew what to do. I think some people could probably make the case that there were a lot of people who wanted to go to war just so we could use all of this GWIS technology that we had been developing for 10 years. Next week, in next week's episode, I'm going to talk about how the Vietnam effect really produced a lot of the great gee whiz smart weapons that Americans watched in their living rooms during the combat phase of the Gulf War in 1991 that gave us that incredible victory. And here we are, circa 2020. It really is the last war that the United States has won. The Vietnam effect in 1990, the reason I believed we were going to win that war very easily, had less to do with the technology that we're going to talk about next week than it did with the quality of soldiers that were making up the military in the enlisted ranks. At the senior level, at the policymaking level, both private, you know, in government, and at the Pentagon and the people like General Schwarzkopf and General Powell, General Colin Powell, they had all served in Vietnam. They had all been lieutenants and captains. And that Vietnam experience would impact the way America felt about the war, that it might not go well. But when the war started, I think it also impacted how we fought that war. But that's going to be for episodes down the road. Like I said, in the fall of 1990, the no blood for oil crowd is ramping it up big time. And I'm telling you, every time you walk through the student common area, you had the people with the signs, not another Vietnam, no blood for oil. And again, people had been conditioned to expect that. Even in 1983, when the United States invaded the great military power known as the island of Granada, we had maps that tourists would use, and it didn't go all that well. There was that moment in 1989 where we invaded Panama, but that was it happened over the Christmas break. I think it started on you know right after Christmas, and it was over by New Year's Day. It was just something that happened, and it was in Panama. It wasn't like we were fighting the Russians or the Libyans or anything like that. Even though I think that operation, operation. 
Operation Just Cause went very well. It certainly, in terms of scope, was not enough to convince people that the American military had turned a corner. In reality, that wouldn't happen until February of 1991. In the fall of 1990, as I'm on campus at San Antonio College, the Vietnam effect is casting its shadow in every discussion, every debate, every composition paper that we're writing. It is something that everybody is talking about. It actually made it a very exciting time to be a college student. In September of 1990, I had no idea, and I told you in a previous episode, had no thought that my National Guard unit in San Antonio, Texas, was going to get anywhere near the shooting war. But that shadow of Vietnam had cast a long shadow, a 15-year shadow over how Americans felt about the military, how Americans felt about the competence of the military, and it wasn't entirely unfounded. The biggest difference was that by the time I joined the Army in 1986, when I arrived at Fort Ord, I can honestly say I witnessed out with the old, in with the new. It was a very different kind of soldier. It was the be-all-you-can-be army. Like I mentioned before, it was the difference between the old broken-down Jeep and this new beautiful Humvee. Everything was getting better. The equipment was better. Now, granted, I was still only making about $712 a month, but you could tell we had turned a corner. But because Operation Desert Shield, before it becomes a shooting war, is still being debated and discussed in many ways in the political spectrum, the people that were against the war had this Trump card, well, it's going to be another Vietnam, it's going to be another Vietnam, and the people that were protesting wanted to make the Vietnam protesters proud. And the people like me who didn't think it was going to be that way did not have a lot of empirical evidence to argue otherwise. That wouldn't happen until 1991. That experience in Vietnam compelled the military to rethink what kind of people could fight the wars, especially after the draft ended. And next week, we're going to talk about the equipment that would have been perfectly useless without the highly trained soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that would use it when the shooting war started in 1991. But back at San Antonio College down on San Pedro Avenue in San Antonio, Texas in September of 1990, I was still arguing with professors and fellow students about the outcome of a war that had not even started. And I would say for the most part, my arguments were falling on deaf ears because of the Vietnam effect. It was absolutely coloring everything in terms of policy and politics. When President Bush did his first press conference the night the war started, he said, this will not be another Vietnam. said it just like that. It would, it would color and underscore and be an inflection point at every significant point of Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Everyone said it's not going to be another Vietnam. The leader said it's not going to be another Vietnam. And, of course, because we have the perfect lens and aperture of history to look back on, many people, myself included, when that war ended, would say, well, I guess it is 
another Vietnam. I'll explain it, not from a military standpoint, but from a political standpoint. Like I said, we will talk about that much, much later down the road. Thank you again for listening to the Thunder and Lightning Operation Desert Storm podcast. Until next we speak, my name is Jason Dias, and we'll talk to you soon.